This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Cobras and Fire. I'm your host, LC, and I am pleased to have the author of This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick, Brian J. Cramp, with me today. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm good, LC. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's odd not to call you BJ or Kahuna and stuff like that. We have to use your, <laughs> your professional yeah. name now. Yeah? Yeah. My, yeah, my official author name. That's right. <laughs> All right, Tokyo! So yeah, I mean, I, I've read this book uh, pretty quickly, just just over a week, and uh, enjoyed it. And I'm not even that big of a cheap trick fan, you know. I'm 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 a in between. I'm a fan, but I'm not a super fan. Right. Uh, but I still enjoyed this book, getting into all the minutia. But uh, I just figured maybe we could kind of go back to even you know. Uh, why, why don't you tell a little bit about your fandom of Cheap Trick and, and how it led to this this book and maybe how long it took to actually make it from a, an idea to reality? Because I think this whole thing is fascinating. The fact that we have a fellow podcaster who has a published – who actually finished a damn project and got <laughs> it published. I mean that that in and of itself is a win, I got to tell you, and, and is one of their passions. So please take me down the road, my friend. Yeah, well, they've been my favorite band since the 90s, since I was in college and – you know, I mean, as anybody who knows me knows, I'm an obsessed music fan. And so I have a lot of favorite bands, you know, but Cheap Trick are are number one because the kind of a combination of all the different stuff I like, hard rock, punk rock, glam rock, power pop, all that kind of stuff, a little bit of heavy metal in there. So, and there's a sense of humor. There's, all, you know, there's so many different elements that make Cheap Trick a band that a lot of people just kind of 
obsessively love. I mean, they're one of those bands that have a pretty rabid fan base, you know, not as big as like a Kiss fan base, but similar, you know, a smaller version of that maybe. Um, But yeah, the idea of writing a book really does kind of come out of podcasting because the idea of interviewing people is not something I probably ever imagined I would ever do. But in general, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it was not something I have probably ever really thought about until, you know, podcasting came around. And, you know, I was started out as a huge fan of podcasts. And then when I thought, you know, because I have such a big music collection and have always been an obsessive, you know, researcher or whatever, I always want to learn more, find more bands. I want, I, I always, you know, if I like a band, I want to learn about their history, learn about the other bands the guys were in, all that kind of stuff. I've always been very nerdy like that. So I knew I had kind of something to offer to podcasting. So that's why I got into it. But then that opened the door to interviewing people and then figuring out you could find people, especially in this day and age with like Facebook and things. It's so much easier to find anyone than it would have been to try to write something like this before social media or whatever. Right. So it was podcasting that sent me down that road of finding people, interviewing people. So, and then, you know, I did the cheap trick podcast with Ken Mills too. And we had, and that's called cheap, cheap talk with trick chat. (laughs) See, I want to see if you stumbled on it. It's your own damn title. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the pod father came up with it, but uh, (laughs) I think he, I think he couldn't decide between the two. So he just used both, you know, all right. Well, we pretty much call it cheap talk, but um, yeah, we had on cheap talk. Some of the quotes in my book are actually from a few interviews we did for cheap talk, you know, and then when I, do you have any of those 33 and a third books, the little books that are just about an I got album? one on uh, the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique with all the sampling and everything that went on that one. Yep, right. those look pretty great. Yeah, so anybody could pitch one of those books. You can they, they open it up at random times and you can submit a pitch for one. Mm-hmm. So that was my original project was to pitch a book about the first Cheap Trick album. But it was when Cheap Trick's former manager, Ken Adamani, got involved that I really expanded the scope to to write a real book as opposed to 33 and a third book, even though I still limited my focus to just the early years of the band. But it, it kept kind of growing. Ken Adamani is the one who got Bunny Carlos involved. And then, you know, once I have that, it became something more than what I had even thought possible. I never thought I would actually be able to talk to Ken Adamani. He hasn't worked for the band in since like the mid-90s. And uh, he was just always kind of this mythical figure that I knew about, you know, having grown up in Wisconsin and gone to college in Madison. That's where Ken Adamani, his offices were always based in Madison. Okay. So Cheap Tricks, their fan club or whatever was always a Madison address. And, you know, they were cheap trick. Madison was kind of their home away from home from Rockford. So um, so I, I knew who Ken Annemany was, but the idea that he would actually talk to me and participate in a book, I would have never thought that was possible. Now, were those in-person interviews then? Since yeah, you're, yeah. Since you're close? Okay, so you actually went and met. How mm-hmm, many people did I, you actually meet in, in, in the flesh, so to speak, or whatever, in person? Yeah, only a few, but I actually... Yeah, when I first started emailing with Ken, 
there's a guy named Jim Charty who worked for Epic Records when Cheap Trick were signed, and he knew Ken at Manigoan all the way back to the late 60s in Madison, and he was the person. I just started talking to people. When I was thinking about focusing on their first album, I started talking to people whose names were on the album cover, you know, and people who worked for the label at the time. I just started trying to track these people down, and Jim Charney was one of them. I didn't know he had a connection to Ken Adamani. He told me, he's like, I could put you in touch with Ken. And I was like, all right. And then, you know, Ken actually started emailing with me and then uh, said we were going to have a meeting. And it took a, maybe a year, a year and a half before the meeting actually happened. And then Ken Adamani said, what do you think about having Bunny Carlos at our meeting? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And so, yeah. So I went to Ken's country club like five, six years ago. Okay. Sat in a you know, a little like meeting room with him and Bunny Carlos and Bunny's manager. It was like three and a half, four hour meeting. And um, mostly Bunny Carlos answering any questions I had. Um, I had wanted, I had hoped for a lot more input from Ken, but I ended up, you know, getting that later on. But Ken kept saying, just talk to Bunny, just talk to Bunny. I guess he figured it might be my only chance. Right. Um, But I've met Ken multiple times now. And, uh, yeah, so his input into the book is huge, and that's what really made it, you know. But, yeah, the idea of writing a book, <laughs> you know, there was definitely a lot of time during this process where I never thought I would finish it. It's like well, that's you what... go through a long period where I don't know if I could pull this off, you know, but eventually you get over the hump, and once you're, once you're kind of on the downhill slope where you have a book and now you're just tweaking it, rewriting it, adding to it, it becomes a lot more fun, but it's really hard to get to that point of having, you know, an entire book that you can work with is uh, that's, you know, the research and transcribing interviews is like the worst. But well, the, yeah, that's what I was going to jump in is the so the one. I guess there's two, two, this was two, two part questions. So the, the first part is that uh, is the majority of the quotes from Bunny Carlos, which is the only member of the band that agreed to participate in it, is that the majority from that three and a half hour interview where you just kind of went through everything? Or did you have subsequent email conversations afterwards or phone calls for different parts or no? Yeah. Originally, after that meeting, I didn't get anything else from Bunny for a few years. Okay. But all of a sudden- So we going back four years, five years ago? When you initially did that? Five or six, yeah. See, that's what's really impressive about this is just the, the road when it comes to – so when this finally became a reality, we're like, I can't believe this is actually – I would assume that's how I would be like, this is actually happening now. Yeah, by the time I had an in with a publisher, I pretty much had a book. Right. Yeah. So that was – yeah, I mean, there was always the idea I might just have to publish it myself. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, but as it was – the big change was when I had a publisher, all of a sudden, then Bunny would answer any question I had. It was a complete oh, change. Okay. And so I would email him. Well, he was just like, send me some questions. And I had a list of a crazy list of questions that I'm trying to whittle it down. And I would just, at some point, I was like, why? Why? And I just copied and pasted the whole thing, just sent him this insanely long list of questions. <laughs> Okay. And he wrote back. He's like, well, that's a lot of questions. And then he called me on the phone and he just went down the list. And, you know, some of them, he didn't really have much to say, mm-hmm. but he went down the list, talked about everyone. And then I sent him more and he called me again 
I probably had four phone conversations with him and a lot of stuff came out of that. Um, and you know, there's so much more because he would, he would go off on a tangent that I never even knew to ask him about. And you, when you realize there's a lot of stuff in his memory <laughs> that I don't know how to get there. Cause I don't even know it's there. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book is a story about Patty Smith that he just randomly told me when I just asked him about the recording studio in New York, which I had no idea that there was this story. And I don't know if he had even told anybody this story in, you know, 40 years. So there's, a, there's definitely a lot more. And yeah, like if I had been able to talk to the other guys, I mean, the book is already really long. So, you know, it would have been, if I had actually been able to interview Rick Nielsen, which I tried right up to, until the very end, but at the same point, it's like, what would I have to take out of the book then to put in? So I don't know. Um, but yeah, Bunny uh, answered every single question I threw at him once I had a publisher. <laughs> That's cool. So, so on that, when did it, when did you realize that the book was the book that you wanted or the story you wanted to tell, I should say, was it always the formation of the band and, and did you have the scope of when, when it would stop? You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. hard to think like, what, do I, what story do I want to tell? Cause this, this is, I mean, the first 150 pages or so are, you know, before the first album or maybe I'm remembering, remembering it wrong, but it's like the whole formation. And then it stops right at dream police. Do, do you remember that right or not? Yeah. My basic idea was to stop right when Budokan comes out in the U S right before the band yep. becomes, you know, hugely successful. Uh huh. And so, before Budokan comes out in the U.S., they had already finished Dream Police. So, you know, I do talk a little bit about when they recorded Dream Police and stuff like that. And that, that was part of the thing I was always shocked about is the fact that they had at least some version of Dream Police, like back by the second or first album. I mean, that's yeah, the song. madness. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> yeah. insane. That, that that was the thing about this. Uh, I'm just going to bounce just from to get give you a quick review. Like those are the facts that I was amazed is how many amazing songs these guys just had sitting there. Like, yeah. To, to use before even their first album came out and that you were used on one's past. Was that, I mean, maybe that's something as a fan you always knew, but that was something I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I did know that, but I didn't know, you know, by the time they recorded their first album, I want you to want me and surrender were both completely finished songs that they had been playing live <laughs> that they had played live plenty of times. Uh, as for dream police, Bunny Carlos told me about there was a version of the song that definitely got rewritten or rearranged for okay. by the time they recorded it. But there was a song. In fact, it's either in December 76 or January of 77. There's an article that mentions that song, you know? So, <clears throat> so yeah, that song, a version of that song was around. Well, supposedly they recorded for the first album supposedly surrender and dream police were both recorded but they only ever did like the basic tracks they never did any overdubs or vocals or anything but they did take a pass at those two songs and then they they recorded a complete version of i want you to want me for the first album that they just didn't that jack douglas just didn't put on the album and it mm -hmm. wouldn't really have fit because jack douglas the songs he chose for their first album were kind of their craziest weirdest songs for the most part yeah um, but yeah, they had all three of their, basically when they made their first album, they had all three of their most well-known like concert staples and didn't put them on the record. That's what I mean. That's, that's the part I found shocking. Um, yeah. 
But okay, so you're, that you that was always your scope that you would do the that was the book you wanted to write. It wasn't something that kind of evolved over time. You had the the beginnings and then stopping right when everything got huge. That was kind of the zone. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's definitely inspired by uh, Van Halen Rising, Greg mm-hmm. Renoff. You know, he had kind of set a precedent of a book like that. I always joke with him that my book is Cheap Trick Rising. I mean, I just ripped him off, you know. <laughs> sure. Mine goes further than his in in the story, but he he definitely made that idea something that, you know, was doable because he had already done it. So. And the good thing is, too, is that if I ever have a pop quiz about Rockford, I know a lot of facts now. Yeah, I felt like a book about Cheap Trick has to have at least some kind of a history of Rockford. Of course. And, you know, that was one of the hardest things to do. I mean, it's hilarious that you have to read, like, three books and a bunch of newspaper articles and stuff to write, like, a page. <laughs> but right. how do you write a history of a city? You know, it's a lot of work. And you, you I got to condense it down to a page or two. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of work to do some, to do it right, you know? Yeah. So, But I felt like... Rockford is such a central part of the Cheap Trick story. I feel like if I'm going to do this book right, I have to have like a history of Rockford in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did it. And yeah, all the stuff about their early bands. You know, if you look at Cheap Trick's Wikipedia page right now, the first couple paragraphs, it's almost completely wrong. It's all wrong. My book, you know, explains you ch- how. Are it's you all a Wikipedia? Wrong. Are you, have you tried to? No, I haven't. I haven't. Because if you have, I, mean, I don't you know what see. kind of cred you have to have. Because like, if you go yeah. there, I've played around with it back in the day, but it it gets re-edited by some overlord. You know what I mean? Like, right? Yeah, I've I've made a few changes on Wikipedia over the years, but they stuck? you could take you could take my book as a source. Yeah, and, and correct because, like I said, maybe the first couple paragraphs, almost everything is wrong. So it's kind of. I mean, if you're going to condense the story, it's pretty difficult, but. That's the thing I wanted to do is clear up everything about the early bands they were in, you know, the band Sick Man of Europe, when they all, it was really important for me to tell the story when they moved to Philadelphia. These are things that Cheap Trick bands know about in the most basic terms, like, oh, they were in Philadelphia. Yeah, but, you know, they were in Philadelphia for like two and a half years. Three of the four guys from Cheap Trick were in Philadelphia in a band. So I really wanted to tell as much of that story as I possibly could. And, uh, but, you know, it was hard without input from, (laughs) you know, Rick and Tom, but, um, yeah. So people know about the bands they were in before Cheap Trick, but it's, they don't know much. And a lot of it is just kind of incorrect. No, I I thought it was also interesting. The, the amount of times that they were in bands with other members i think cross pollination yeah. i think mm-hmm. you called it you know what i mean like th- like that was fascinating and it makes sense that that by the time they actually had a showcase or, or had their album that they were they're ready to fucking go you know what i mean like you've never like you said like this is one of the the most prepped ready to go bands like their whole stage pers- persona before they even had you know their first album right everything was was good to good to go yeah they were absolutely pros they were all in bands since they were teenagers Right. You know, by the time Cheap Trick gets a record deal, they've all been playing in bands for 10 plus years. And they, at Cheap Trick, have been playing every night of the week for three, four years, just nonstop. So, yeah, they, they were complete professionals. And yeah, they, you know, they, 
most of the producers that work with them say it's the easiest band they ever produced. They, you know, they just come into the studio and knock it out in no time. So here's the here's the thing that I was, I guess, surprising to me, and and I like to because I'm I'm always interested in the, in how this book was made too. So, what pushback or why did you? What was the message you got from like Rick Nielsen or any of them for 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 why they wouldn't want to participate in it? Because this is not like a dirt. You know, we're gonna find some dirt on you guys. This is like basically a celebration of their entire existence. So. Did they, anybody give you any particular reason why they didn't, besides Bunny that they didn't want to participate? No, the only the only thing I ever heard back from was from their manager who just gave me some line about how it competes with other projects or you know, oh, come on. Um, you know they have had multiple documentaries in the works and apparently there's another one. I don't know. Um, they you know the, I didn't I didn't really expect the guys to talk the only one i thought i had a chance with was rick you know there's a book that came out a couple years ago called um they just seem a little weird by doug broad it's a book about cheap trick kiss aerosmith and stars ahead of the crossover and doug broad used to work for spin magazine he was like an editor of tv guide he like has a resume that i don't have and rick and rick robin and tom refused to talk to him and rick gave him one hour so if that's all he got, I knew I didn't have much of a chance. I offered to let him, I offered to let Rick read the book. I offered, I said, what if I email five questions, <laughs> you know, anything. Um, but yeah. So on that end was bunny and a surprise then that you were actually to have that much access to him when you were saying that. Yeah, or, that was like I said, Ken Adamani was the person who right. brought bunny in, but then I found out, Buddy Carlos's manager told me that when I had that meeting with Ken and Bunny, that was the first time those two guys have been in a room together since the nineties. Okay. You know? So that was kind of a reunion for them. And I think, you know, Ken Adamani might've even used me to make that reunion happen with Bunny. I mean, you know, I think there was something in it for him too, I guess. Um, you know, those two guys are on the outs with the band. And it's really it's really sad because they both love the band and are so proud of what they did with right. the band. I mean, Ken Amani was their manager from the very beginning for more than twenty years, and Bunny, you know, is a founding member. I mean, technically, the only two founding members of Cheap Trick are Bunny and Rick. You know, Robin and Tom weren't in the original incarnation of this band, so it's. You know, it's it's difficult, I think, for both of them. I mean, I think that's the reason Bunny, after our first meeting, he had told me, he's, I don't really want to talk about Cheap Trick anymore because it's painful. <laughs> you know, all these memories, you know, they're all tinged with, you know, some kind of regret or, or sorrow at this point. Um, so I am really grateful that he did just answer anything I, I asked him. Have you sent, uh, like, during that process... I mean, you. I assume you you sent chapters to like Robin and or or I don't even know how that would work. But I'm saying like, did they know kind of what the zone of the book was going to be? And they still it was just a, all as a brush off. No, I know? never did. I offered to, but they never took me up on it. Um, have, have you done a balls move where you just send them a damn book, each one well, of the members? As far as now? I know, Rick. As far as I know, Rick has a book now. Well, that's great. Um, but 
I have no idea what he thinks of it. Um, there's a guy, well, Paul Hamer, you know, from Hamer Guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to get advanced copies to a lot of the people that helped me that I interviewed. And so when I emailed Paul to ask him if I could get him an advanced copy, he, when he emailed me back, he said, I just talked to Rick and he wants one. And so I sent two copies to Paul and I put a note in there for Rick with all my contact info. And that's okay. Um, so I just actually emailed Paul this weekend because I hadn't heard back. Paul had told me he was going to give it to Rick the next time he saw him, but he didn't know when that would be. So I emailed him and I was like, did you ever, were you ever able to give that copy to Rick? And he wrote me back and said, oh, I sent it to him as soon as I got it last summer. <laughs> okay. So I guess Rick has had it for a while. Um, I think the publisher might have tried to send copies to their organization to get to Robin and Tom. But um, Ed, Ed, yeah. did you tell them that it's the number one book in the Midwest? Midwest <laughs> yeah. autobiographies. Like, how, yeah. tell me, tell me all the uh, charts you were number one on uh, upon debut. Come on, <laughs> yeah, all these uh, sub sub uh, sub. <laughs> like, who knew these charts even existed? Yeah. <laughs> well, it even shows up on some law enforcement biography. <laughs> I don't even remember anything about law enforcement. I don't know how it ended up on that list. Cops love it. I was was bragging on Facebook. You know, I'm number one in a subgenre of a subgenre. I mean, what does any of that even mean? But people like Take it, it, man. It looks good. Nobody, (laughs) as long as people don't look at the details, it says number one. Yeah, right. (laughs) I just, I could just put number one and then in very small print in, you know, Midwest biographies. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever. That's right. Yeah, it's just tiny in the fine print. Yeah. Number one ranked <laughs> thing on Amazon. So, yeah. so on that too, like like what I, what what I was impressed with is a that actually showed up when it was supposed to show up. That doesn't always happen with pre-orders. The uh, other other part was the quality through Jawbone Press. You know, it's got a little you know flap for the the bookmark. The, uh, the you could just tell it's 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 quality. And so so how did you get connected with Jawbone? Um, because that looks like, you know, going to their site, they're, they're a solid outfit. It looks like as far as their distribution and. Yeah, I already, I already had a few books, uh, from Jawbone. There's a, there's a, um, Ozzy Osbourne crazy train. I think that's a Jawbone book. Okay. That's about the Randy Rhodes years. Um, I had a few and now I have more cause they'll just give me them for free. But, uh, you know, they have a cool faith in the more book and a Devo book and, um, yeah, there's a big star book that they published. So uh, there's a guy named Stephen Roth who actually listened to Cheap Talk. And he did like, he works for a marketing company that used to be connected to Jawbone. And he's the, he heard me talking about my book on the podcast. And he said, you know, you should, you should think about Jawbone. They might be interested in this. And then he put me in contact with the uh, managing editor, whatever his title is, Tom, who, Tom is the guy who makes the decisions on what they're going to publish. Okay. And so I sent him a couple chapters that he asked for a couple more. I sent him a couple more. And like I said, you know, by this time I had the whole book. I mean, it's a much different book from what it was then to what's published now, especially mm-hmm. because once I got a publisher, like I said, Bunny was a lot more forthcoming, but also Ken Adamani became a lot more uh, helpful. Ken Adamani was very helpful all along, but, once I had a publisher, he got a lot more excited. And um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a much better book, even from what I had when they agreed to publish it at this point. But yeah, I, I, for, after four chapters, they sent me a contract and that was it. It was 
done deal. Yeah, it was you know, very surreal. And uh, yeah, the thing about it is, I, I also envisioned possibly maybe ECW that published Van Halen Rising would be an option. And Greg Renoff told me, you know, ECW and Jawbone are basically the only publishers that will even talk to you without an agent. You know, any other publisher, Got like it. you're not, they're not even going to get in a conversation with you unless they're going through an agent. So, and when Greg got Van Halen Riley, Rising published, he didn't have an agent at the time. He does now, but so, so yeah, Jawbone, I was lucky because Stephen Roth even put the idea in my head and linked me up with the, with Tom, the editor. And then um, they will, they would even entertain the idea, even though I didn't have an agent. So, yeah, I mean, Cheap Trick seems like something that's like has uh, without revealing, you know, numbers and everything like that. But do you think it's, it's moved to the level you expected or a little bit more or, cause it seemed from my perspective, it looks like it did pretty well on launch, but yeah, I have no idea. Cause I don't, they haven't told me what? any numbers. <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. You call those guys up. It, to well, me, it looks, it, to me, it seems like something that was, there wasn't enough info out there for it. Cause there's all these books on like books like kiss that has every, cause the thing about this, uh, to give more detail about the book is it goes into kind of their touring schedule and things like that. So it's a kind of a combination of the different things, but the story plus, if you want to know kind of where they were at during that time too, like the set lists. And I, I think, I think that there's just a demand out there craving for this kind of, of book, especially in their, their, their kill zone of the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, it's, I, there's still, I'm sure a lot of people who would be interested in the book who don't know about it yet. And it's hard to know how to get the word out without like the publisher actually shelling out for some advertising or something. Sure. You know, I had a big plan. I, I had an amazing picture that I didn't get in time for the book that there's a photographer named Marshall Mintz, who I talk about in the book, who the song, Oh Candy is about, he committed suicide. And, um, I, didn't get in touch with his daughter until the book was already done. When I finally, I was trying for years. I, at one point had contacted his sister, but I never heard back from her after like one, one response. So when I finally got in touch with his daughter, the book was done. It was even at the printer and, but it hadn't been printed yet. So I managed to get my editor to let me alter two pages in the book so I could get some information from his daughter in there. And then, but then even after that, she sent me, all of a sudden she sent me this picture because her dad was a photographer and took pictures of Cheap Trick in 1975. But all the pictures anyone has ever seen that he took her in black and white, she sent me this color picture that he took that was just mind blowing. And I actually got her to agree to let me use it. So on the day the book came out, I just blasted that on Facebook. I had ads that I had put together and... I think that really did help because I I've learned that the best way to get their attention is a picture they haven't seen. So I knew sure people are going to really, this picture is going to get some attention. So I did, I paid, I actually got the publisher to give me a hundred bucks towards the Facebook ads, but I blasted the ads out on the cheap talk page and my rock indoor roll page. And that must've helped, but I have no idea how much, but, you know, that's the extent <laughs> that anything like that has even happened beyond the book has now been reviewed by Record Collector, Goldmine, Classic Rock. They've all given it four star good reviews. That's awesome. So, you know, obviously that's going to help because the kind of people that read this book are 
I don't know what kind of circulation these magazines have anymore, but anybody who's reading those magazines are the kind of people that are going to buy a book like this. When do you um, get your numbers? When are they going to let you know? I've asked. <laughs> I have asked multiple times, but the one good indication I have is um, I talked to my editor. I said, I have some corrections um, in case there's a second printing. And he didn't act like there's no possibility of a second printing. Um, it's, I also got him, <laughs> I actually got him to change a couple pages. If it goes through a second printing, there's a little bit of new information in there. Especially I talked to Cheetah Chrome from the Dead Boys, a guitar player from the Dead Boys. And he ended up telling me that when Cheap Trick played Max's Kansas City, uh, when they were in New York recording the first album, they did a show at Max's Kansas City. And all of the Dead Boys just happened to be there because they were there talking to the guy who booked Max's Kansas City about the Dead Boys playing at Max's Kansas City. Because this was like a month after they first ever played in New York, the Dead Boys did. So finding out that all of the dead boys were at that cheap trick show at max's was like this insane piece of info so i got my editor to let me add that into the book if it goes to a second printing but like i said when i brought up a second printing he just didn't laugh and say you know keep dreaming <laughs> no i i think that this is going to have a long shelf life and i think there there is going to be a sequel if you want to do one or at least a an update version where the other members of the band are going to contribute to it because all I know is that Cheap Trick for me was kind of this mystical band. Uh, I'm not sure if we talked about this before, just one-on-one, but like, I mean, I grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. And mm-hmm. so I would, and, and Cheap Trick would always come close to the to the Midwest. But what I was fascinated about, even from knowing the schedules, was that even back then, even in their prime, Indiana fucking doesn't rock. They did not really go there. They would like avoid it and end up in Ohio and end up in uh, Illinois and Minnesota, and it was just kind of funny seeing all that. So I never actually saw them until like maybe five years ago in St. Charles at this place they always frequent. I forget the name of it, but that's in St. Charles, Illinois, and and sold out. You know, packed to the gills. You know, just five years ago. So they still have that that power. And those are the those are the people that are going to be gobbling this up. Those super fans is what I mean. Yeah, you know, I I talked in my introduction how when they when Jack Douglas came to see them at a bowling alley in Waukesha, Wisconsin, I was literally across the street. <laughs> I was two years old, mm-hmm. but um, the idea that they were signed at Sunset Bowl, I mean, I've been at, I've been to Sunset Bowl. My parents' uh, wedding reception was in the same room where Jack Douglas saw Cheap Trick for the first time. Their 25th wedding anniversary was in that room, and just in June their 50th wedding anniversary was in that exact room where Jack Douglas came to see cheap trick. And that was the start, the beginning of them getting their record deal. Yeah. So, so for you, for you, it has that extra level of the fact that it's almost like your hometown band. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having gone to college in Madison, right. You know, everybody, everybody I met loved cheap trick and everybody had stories about cheap trick. I've where I work now, I've met a guy who was bunny's drum tech for the doctor tour. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, they are almost a local band in Wisconsin because they they played in Wisconsin. You know, in the first few years of the band, most of their shows were in Illinois and Wisconsin. They probably played in Wisconsin probably more than Illinois. I mean, the whole circuit they played, a lot of it was in Wisconsin. So, yeah, they really are a beloved kind of local band where I grew up, where I went to college. Yeah. So, and I, right now I live an hour away from Rockford. 
So tell everybody the easiest place that they can buy this. Besides Amazon, of course, where would you like them to go? We'll add the we'll add the the link in the notes too. Yeah, you know, everywhere you can buy books online. Um, it, but it's also it's in a lot of Barnes and Noble stores out there. You know, you could go on the Barnes and Noble website and search. And um, I, I've you know, there's a it's I found it at the Barnes and Noble in the Brookfield Square Mall where I used to go as a kid growing up, and it's it's in both of the local Barnes and Nobles in Madison. It's gotta now. be cool to see that on the on the shelf. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you uh do you go like hey everybody see my book over here? You want to see yeah. it? <laughs> Did you, yeah, did you, I, did you I, um, impromptu uh, book signings? Just just like come on over here? <laughs> I mean, I, I have given thought to book signings, but I just picture me sitting there like spinal tap and no, no one comes. I don't know if I have the, have no, the nerve. You need to do gorilla book signings. Just fucking show yeah. up in front of some of your books in some place. Put up well, a there's little a record card store table. In, there's a record store in Madison where the guy, I emailed the guy, asked him if he had the book in stock, and now he ordered it. I'm going to go there and sign some copies for him. But yeah. he offered to do like a book signing, but I just don't want to risk <laughs> no one showing up and just sitting there. Why you don't know? you just put a sign that says cheap trick and people just don't know if you're in cheap trick or not. They think, Hey, it's a guy from cheap trick in his book. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah? All right. <laughs> just throwing stuff out there. Well, I could say cheap trick really big. And then in the fine print. <laughs> <author. laughs> That's, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's not false advertising. It's just bad eyesight. All right. So, uh, yeah, I, mean, I just enjoyed the read. I, I thought it was, it went, it went, it went a different direction than I, that I thought. I, th- I figured it was like the start and it would go further, but I liked how it just kept into a, a zone and, and it just threw so much detail. Uh, and it made me go into the albums again too, from a reader. So if that's kind of what you're, you know, hoping to inspire some people to rediscover those albums, those first handful. I do have to say that that as far as Budokan, what are your thoughts on the expanded version that came out? I don't know, ten years ago or whatever it was. Do you like that version, or do you like? Are you a purist where you only like the original? No, I think the complete concert is way better. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the original, the at Budokan, there's not a, not a single song from the first album on there, and the first album is my favorite. But when you have songs like Hello Kitties and Can't Hold On, and there's some really great stuff that didn't make the original Budokan. I mean, I don't think Budokan is a great representation of Cheap Trick, really. Um, especially I always because, thought it was just too tight. Like, it's like 10 songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's far from my favorite Cheap Trick album. <laughs> That's for sure. It's one of the last ones I would ever put on, honestly. Um, so you like the studio versions better? For the most part of those songs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love in color is my second favorite cheap trick album and heaven tonight is amazing. So yeah, I, I would just listen to the albums, but the, yeah, the complete concert is great. And also the live album that came out a couple years ago on record store day called out to get you, which was at the whiskey in LA. That was when they were out there recording in color. You know, that's amazing. And that's not even touched up at all. Uh, but bunny Carlos was complained to me that Robin's guitar is louder than Rick's. And uh, there's a couple songs where Robin is kind of struggling too, where they definitely would have fixed it in the studio. Um, so that's a really raw, I mean, those were kind of legendary shows. I, I talk about those shows in the book, you know, there's a, yep. there's a guy who wrote a book about 
Eddie Van Halen, like last year, I think his name is Steve Rosen. And Greg Renoff actually tipped me off that that guy was on a podcast called Dave and Dave Unchained, the Van Halen podcast. And he talked about meeting Eddie Van Halen for the first time. It was at the Cheap Trick Show at the Whiskey. Um, And he said that Eddie was a huge Cheap Trick fan. So that was an amazing little tidbit I was able to put in the book. And I talked to a couple of the guys from the Mumps who opened those shows. And uh, Sal Maida, who was in Sparks, was at those shows. Uh, The Sparks had just kind of moved back to L.A. And there's interesting stuff in there about Rick Rick and Tom going to lunch with Sparks when they were out there. So, yeah, those whiskey shows are legendary and there's some pretty cool information about that in the book but a lot of people say you know this is better than Budokan and it is it is an amazing document of cheap trick just you know going wild at the whiskey a go-go in 1977 so yeah that and that has come out on cd now too and also there's a new thing coming out like a three or four cd set because they played i think they played three nights at the whiskey so I think the entire, all three nights are coming out now because they were professionally recorded. Tom Werman actually, who was producing in color actually, you know, had the, those shows like professionally recorded. Like they were, I think they were even considered before Budokan, they were even considering putting out a live album from that, from the whiskey. And then they finally did, you know, a long time later. Right. Well, cool. Well, I'm trying to think if there's any other podcaster that's actually pulled off a book, music podcaster. I think you're the only one. What do you think? Well, besides Julian Gill. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, yeah. what am I thinking? <laughs> of course. Yes. Julian Gill has done it. And well, Martin Popoff was a writer first, then a podcaster. So I'm not going to count him. Well, Julian too. Yeah. Julian is a, yeah. I mean, I've had Julian books for what, 20 plus years now. Yeah. <laughs> That's that true. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the Rocket Pod. So that's right. He was right. Yeah, of course. If he was a writer first, then then had the FAQ podcast. So yeah. I'm going to say that you're still the only one. You're the only one that went podcaster first and then author in the music genre. Can you call yourself that? First published author, <laughs> podcaster? Yeah. Let's say yeah. it. <laughs> At Barnes & Noble, people, this guy <laughs> talking about uh, Cheap Trick for years, turning it into – a, uh, a lucrative career and yeah, yeah very lucrative <laughs> so, and, and all and you know he pitched his idea to jawbone press listen i've i have a lot of books i i'm, I'm i've uh, you've inspired me to start a lot of books that I'm, i'll never finish uh, i have i have <laughs> i have one just called a lifetime of not reading the room this is my autobiography I'm trying to find a publisher there um <laughs> actually that's the only one but I, I haven't even started it yet. But 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 the fact that it can actually happen—you're inspiring the masses, Brian. Yeah, but as soon as you're done, now you're now you're like now I have to do it again. <laughs> I got to keep this ball rolling. That's true. So so let's say things go the right way. Do you would you like to tell more the next chapter of this, or do you want, or is there another kind of because uh, you're like you said you're a huge fan of so many bands, or is there another entire other project that you would like? To, to to tackle yeah i personally i don't think a sequel of this book is really possible um you know i've said on other interviews that the you know once once they become rock stars everybody pretty much knows that story and also everything yeah. becomes more secretive sheltered everything's off the record nobody's going to tell you any of the real stories 
And also, my goal with this book was always to not put anything in here that would piss them off. Sure. I don't think there's any way to tell the story after this without, you, like, everybody knows that Tom Peterson ended up out of the band, but nobody knows the real story. Um, I don't know the real story, but I know that the official story is not the real story. Got it. And in my opinion, I wouldn't want to write the next book if I couldn't tell the real story of why Tom Peterson was out of the band. And that story is not going to be told. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, and then, you know, they don't, Cheap Trick didn't have, they had some really rough times in the 80s. There were drugs and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that uh, the sequel movie would be very interesting if you could actually get the story, but I don't think there's any way to get the story. Okay. Um, they could write it themselves if they, but they, they don't want, <laughs> they don't want a lot of that story told. Um, that makes know, sense. I mean, it is fascinating how they bottom out. Then they have a number one single, mm-hmm. kind of you know revitalizes their career. But then it all goes to shit right after that too. They get dropped by Epic. They have a deal with Warner Brothers that goes to shit. They put out an album. They put out an album that all their fans just absolutely love, and that record label Red Ant goes bankrupt. I mean, the story just becomes a disaster. Well, know. those people like those stories though too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I I, th- I blame it all on that. I, I blame it all on the album that has the clown on the cover. What do you think? Yeah, that was their Warner Brothers album. That was a complete disaster. And that what was, was that when one they called? fired Woke Up with a Monster. <laughs> That's what, okay. All that right. was when they fired Ken Adamant. It was after okay. that Warner Brothers deal went bad. That's probably you wise. Know, <laughs> they had the legal, they were getting sued. They were, they had, you know, I've heard some things that happened with that record that, that Man. were behind the scenes that it was not, that whole Warner Brothers thing was a disaster. And this is that, so. They had a number one single. They put out one more album with Epic, and then they got dropped. Like, can you? Uh, back then, record labels would seem to let people just keep making records. The idea of dropping a band one album removed from a number one hit seems crazy. And then they get the new deal with Warner Brothers, and that just became a real disaster. And then their next deal, the record label, went bankrupt. So it was a, <laughs> you know, they had a rough time. Uh, for even though they had a big hit album in the late 80s, you know, for most of the 80s and 90s, they had a hard time. And yeah, it would be a very interesting story. But like I said, it's you're never going to get the real story. I, well, I, I think yeah, I think you tell Robin Zander and Tom Peterson, if you don't give me some quotes, I'm going to write this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need a second. I need a second edition of this. You gotta give me some quotes, or I'll tell that because I'm already I'm already primed for the sequel from that the description you just you just sold it to me. So okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds great. great. Story, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, they. Uh, I know people have talked about how there's not a cheap trick behind the music because Cheap Trick didn't have, you know, every behind the music had to have where they hit rock bottom. Everything was going great, <laughs> yeah. And then this happened. But Cheap Trick did have that. It's just that. Nobody, nobody, really nobody talks about it. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. All um, right. Well, let's say that let's say Jawbone calls you a year later, and they're like, "All right, this thing sold better than expected." Uh, what other what other band do you want you want to write about? Give me like one or two others that you maybe have an idea if you want to share that. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot. I've actually started the research for a book about the dictators and Manowar because Ross, the boss from the Dictators, started Manowar. But, Can I tell you my idea for a for a Manowar <laughs> pod, podcast? 
What's that? It's called Three Sides of a Loincloth. <laughs> Three Sides of the Loin, yeah. Three Sides of the Loin. What do you think? You can take it. You can take it for your title of your book. Sure. Well, I have Ross the Boss's phone number. So, <laughs> yeah, the guys from the. Does it say? Does like it say that your phone? Board. Ross the Boss? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. it's hilarious if you look at my phone, the people that are in there. <laughs> um, so, it's, yeah, sometimes I scroll through my contacts and it's hilarious, you know? Um, but <laughs> I want to write a book that will sell copies. I'm just, I'm just so, imagining you scrolling through your contacts and it says Jizzy Pearl. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I wish. Yeah. You wish. <laughs> under the J's. Just think of terrible names. I forget Jizzy Pearl's real name. I think it's Jim something, right? I think um, it's, it's Cumstain. <laughs> it's a family name. Yeah, I am going to do a dictator's... My idea is calling it faster and louder from the dictators to man of war <laughs> and Ross the boss is okay with it being a book about the dictators up to and man of war uh the man of war story that's one i'm hoping that they're gonna they're gonna talk to me and i because i'm fascinated by man of war because i am not sure how serious <laughs> they are and how right. much of it because the dictators were a funny band with a big sense of humor. And I feel like there has to be, even though Manowar always play it 100% straight, yeah. there has to be an element of humor or just kind of ridiculousness there. But will they admit it? That's what I, I really. Sure? I, I have a feeling that you should propose one other thing to job on before the Manowar book. I'm just <laughs> well, I have, yeah, like, I you, need to, you need to prove yourself twice and then go, listen, <laughs> you need to go all in on a Manowar book. Yeah, that's going to be a harder sell. But I will tell you, I would like to see it. Maybe that that all the interviews you should ask them to be shirtless during the interviews. <laughs> you think? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if the other guys from Manowar will talk to me or not. So we're gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna. I haven't really. I started working on that, and then when the Cheap Trick book came out, it just kind of uh, got set aside for a bit. But um. That's another one, though. There's nothing out there about Man of War. <laughs> you would dominate that market, right? Yeah. All right, but give like me one I more. Said, I love this. I, want, well, I love I the want, fact that you're – go ahead. I want to write a book that will sell copies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So what's, what's one that, that – that, So, um, you know. Well, I mentioned Stephen Roth earlier who was instrumental in getting me linked up with Jawbone and – I had asked Stephen because he was been helping with helping with the marketing of this book, and I asked him, "Is there any way to get a copy of this book to Joe Elliott or to the Def Leppard camp?" Ooh, because I know nice. Joe Elliott's a big Cheap Trick fan, and so Stephen uh, put it together. He got a friend of his to deliver a copy of the book to Joe Elliott when the stadium tour was in Minneapolis, because Stephen's in Minneapolis, and I sent them a note that they printed up and put with the book that they gave to Joe that saying, I would like to write a similar book about Def Leppard and having all my contact info. So Joe Elliott has that. I have very little hope that I'll ever hear from him. Why? That would be why the, why the lack of confidence. <laughs> that would be amazing. And I've really, another one I've thought about is soul asylum to do oh. a book about soul asylum. Um, haven't really tried Dan Murphy, who was the guitar player, has like an art studio. That's the only way I've figured out to try to contact him. But 
but I didn't try yet. So I'm going to try with that. I've been trying to figure out, you know, a book I want to write and that will actually have the possibility of, you know, selling some copies. I think that that the uh, I'd be interested in reading the Soul Asylum one. I mean, I think those those two albums that they're most known for are just classics. And then there's interesting stuff before and sprinkle of stuff afterwards. What's like two albums just cause we're bouncing all over the place. Cause that's what I do. What's two albums that you'd recommend that people don't really know about solo song that were after let your dim light shine. Oh, I don't, I don't like oh. those. <laughs> you don't like anything after you like all, all the way up to, I love the early. You like my before. favorite solo song like- album is while you were out, which, uh, that was their last album before they signed the A and M. But Hang Time, the first album on A and M, amazing. Is it okay? I bought that at one point, you know, because it had people that were hanging <laughs> on, on on the cover, <laughs> if I remember right. And uh, I think I got that after I was getting into it more. But I'll, I'll I'll go back and revisit. Okay, so you like the early stuff? Yeah, yeah, they're one of my favorite bands ever, especially the you know the Twin Tone albums and uh, Hang Time. Yep, and the and the horse they rode in on their second up for A and M is really great. I like Grave Dancers Union, but after that, it gets kind of difficult for me. So sure. that I guess that is a problem with me running the right Soul Asylum book. <laughs> ah, then you could just do the same thing. You do it all the way up until they got famous. You do the same template every time. Yeah, <laughs> good. I I guess I don't really think the Soul Asylum book will work either. So hmm. I. Uh, so you're riding. That's one thing put, I've been giving yeah. a lot of thought to is what the hell can I do now? <clears throat> you know? So, yeah. I mean, the, like I said, the Def Leppard would be. Um, well, when I was doing the live stream with Chris Sinzak, when he announced Rock'n'Pod. Yep. And, uh, and he had me on there to promote the book. That was awesome. Um, I watched somebody, it. Was it Mark Alden Taylor? Somebody in the comments we were talking about Tesla for some reason. Well, because of Troy Lachetta being at the second rocket pod and, uh, and uh, somebody, I think it was Mark commented, I should write a Tesla book. And then I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do remember Actually. that. That's, that's another one too, that I think would be, cause there's really not that much. Tesla's one of those bands that they're, it's not that they're faceless, but you just don't know that much about them. You know, like, I, like you I would. think that's a really good idea, and I absolutely love Tesla. They've been one of my favorite bands, um, you know, since I was a kid, and uh, so I would. That would be great. Um, so yeah, maybe you know, maybe I'll try to get in touch with them. Is your un- is is uh, somebody that's going to offer unsolicited advice? <laughs> I think that's actually the the one of everything we talked about. That's the one I think I would I would propose Jawbone. That's the one that and, hits the best. I mean, another one that's one of my favorite bands since I was a kid is Dokken. That I thought there is a Dokken book that somebody like self-published, but yeah. um, but that's another one where it's like it's gonna be just all dirt and yelling and yeah, all that versus the yeah. the other one. But uh, well, I'm gonna just turn it real quick from um, from talking about the cheap tri- trick book and just say thank you, uh, sincerely for coming up with the idea with Chris for a rock and pod that's uh that's now, you know, on its fifth version coming up this year. I mean, that's what a cool thing to come up from a concept. I remember being on that call, Baco and I on that call, like when you guys were first discussing the idea of it, like in mm-hmm. 2017, it was just like a random conference call. Wasn't zoom. It was just like audio. If I remember right. Does that sound right? Were we on Skype? 
might have been the Skype call, but it wasn't even like I don't even think I don't remember that it was even video was on. I just remember listening no, no. in, listening in, and being like an yeah. audio conference call and just like bullshitting about it. Here's the idea. Here's this, and and then it became a reality. I mean, that's got to be a cool thing to see. Are you coming this year? I know you have, you didn't make it last time. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, Chris has obviously turned it into something. All I ever said was, we should all get together and hang out. That was basically what my idea was. And when Chris turned it into a record show and a convention and all the guests, getting the guests to be there, you know, um, it's become something, you know, Chris has turned it into something else. But yeah, it all stemmed from when I, when Chris first said, yeah, let's do it in Nashville. And I just started messaging all the guys from podcasting. If we did this thing, would you guys actually come? Yep. And everybody said they would come. Right. You know? And they so, did. So that's why RocketPod exists is because all these podcasts from all around the country, even the world, said, hell yeah, I'll come to Nashville and hang out. You know, Because right. if the podcasters would have all have been kind of wishy-washy about it, then it never would have happened. Yeah. But because all these guys wanted to come and meet and everybody, you know, we'd all become friends just online and everybody wanted to meet each other. And that's what it was all about. Really the first one was just all about everybody, you know, everybody meeting each other and hanging out. And that was really the kind of the motivation of it, but it never would have happened if all the guys hadn't been willing to, hadn't been inspired enough or, you know, just wanted to, well, we all got along so well and just wanted to go hang out. So that was, so that's really cool that that's kind of, how it all started. And now when you see what it's turned into, what Chris has turned it into, it's pretty crazy. What I was most amazed about was the fact that, uh, that the first year wasn't a complete clusterfuck. It wasn't a clusterfuck at all. You know what <laughs> no. I mean? Like the, you know, it, those things usually don't work out that well. Like it just, everybody got along, everything was great. And as a bonus, you ghosted one of the Nelson brothers I can't remember which one, and that that you didn't even you you just like whatever, and we got to, we got a bonus interview out of that because of you too and your negligence. So well, I remember I stepped outside for like five minutes to call my wife. <laughs> He's very punctual. And then when I when I got, came back in, Chris was like, "Where were you? Uh, was it, which one was it? Is it Gunner? I think so. I'm gonna say there, I don't yeah. know the boat. I'll just go with Gunner. I think I interviewed yeah. Gunner. I had nothing to. I was like, oh ho. One of the Nelson really, guys is here. It was literally a matter of minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. Yeah. When I wasn't at my table, you guys got Gunner instead. <laughs> so, it's just fun. Yeah. I remember the first one. It was like, it's not that there's not a lot of people here, but it's still fun. Exactly. And then I remember the second one. At some point, I went up to Chris's wife and I was just like, this is a success. <laughs> I was, the second one was on another level from the first one where it was like, there were a lot of people there. And I couldn't go, go to that one. Oh yeah. Was you my son, that I was one. at my it was same week as my son's birthday. Well, I'll tell you what I am considering going to this, this year's rock and pod in March, but I will only go if noted author, Brian, <laughs> what's your name again? Brian cramp, Brian, Brian, Brian cramp of the, of the, uh, this band has no past. How Cheap Trick became Cheap Trick is there and signing books at his table. So right now, will you commit to propping up Rock and Pod? It is. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, I'll be a huge draw. That's right. <laughs> yeah, anybody special guest. You're a special guest now, man. You're not a podcaster. 
your first author. I haven't been invited as a special guest yet. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Chris know. Yeah. He better get on it. You go on to what? Commit. All right. Yeah. Uh, I know it's that getting endorsement, endorsements from the mor- a morning zoo show isn't the greatest thing in the world, but I just got to tell you <laughs> that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a solid book. Enjoyed reading it and enjoyed listening to rock and or roll over the last, uh, has it been 10 years? It'll be 10 years in May, next May, I guess. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. It, that is that uh, I recommend anybody that's, that's has been off the rock and, and or roll feed to go back and listen to one of my favorites, the cherry pie episode, <laughs> which is I've listened to that three times over, over, over like, like since it came out and it came back again. And I was like, Oh, this one, I got to check this one. again. So many laughs and inappropriate laughs throughout that, that episode. Love it. Yeah. Ian, yeah, and I, I said well, everybody. Everybody's yeah. We did have a lot of fun, but I was like, <laughs> my original thing was, "Who's a fan of cherry pie?" And Ian throws his name in there, and then he comes out and just shits all over it. I don't think he did. He liked the first half, then it fell apart, or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah, critical thought. You can't all love every song. Come on, yeah, the fun. But yeah. all right, well, thanks, BJ. Thank you. Appreciate it. Any parting words? Words? Um, you know. If you're a fan of rock and roll, I think yeah, I don't think you have to be a cheap trick fan, like you've said, uh, to to enjoy this book. I think it's a really funny book. I think it's a fun book. I never um, knew how how, mu- how many whack how many wacky things that uh, Rick Nielsen did on stage too that you kind of chronicle. <laughs> yeah, like the sitting yeah, on my face, uh, you know, <laughs> routine or whatever, and that kind of shit. So it's like, yeah, it was a lot of fun collecting those stories. Like he sticks his head in his amp and comes out with a piece of the speaker cone in his mouth, and all these different stories that I had from different people. That's one thing that I would ask everybody: is Do you remember any crazy thing that Rick Nielsen did or any funny thing he said? I would ask almost everybody that who had seen them back then to try to get anything I could. Um, so yeah, that's. Yeah, I think it's a pretty funny book overall. I agree. All right, what's the playout song? Pick one cheap trick song is the outro. Oh, geez. <laughs> and we can only play 60 to 90 seconds of it. So <laughs> you better pick a good one that has all the good stuff up front. Uh, let's go with He's a Whore. <laughs>